0: I learned this week that sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. At the outset of our you know, social distancing of the church dispersed but not disconnected, I described that, that, that we were going to do a short series with a long name, and the long name was Understanding God's Redemptive Purposes During National Distress, which is Really kind of cumbersome, actually, but it was just going to be a short series, so I wasn't too worried about, you know, cleaning it up because, you know, we were going to be out of here already. (laughs) I didn't know how long this was going to last. I also didn't know what was going to happen when I got to the point where we are tonight in this series. If you've been with us, you know we've kind of tried to title each individual message in in a similar pattern. So we began with for evil, for good, and and by the way, we've 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 repeatedly said we're hitting these different time frames, and we've been ex- expanding out time frames, and we've covered a huge time frame by now in terms of where we've been in the scripture. But we began with for evil, for good, and then we went from bad to worse, and then we went from Arnon to the arrival, and then we went from arrival to crucifixion, from crucifixion to resurrection, from resurrection to return and today we're from alpha to omega. And I thought that this would be a nice tidy end to this series. We'd put a bow on it and we'd say, okay, now next week we'll all be back together again, right? There's no way this was going to take longer than that. And here we are still. We don't know when we're going to be able to be back together. Who knew the shutdown would continue this long? But who knew also, I sure didn't, that when we got to this particular message, which I had told the staff uh, earlier in the week or last week, I told them, I said, this will be the end of this series. It'll be the last one in this series. I had no idea that when I got to this message, my mind would start spinning. And it, it kind of feels to me like when you're trying to make your way through someplace on the internet, and you go to this page, you go to this page, and you click on this page, and then that little thing at the top just keeps turning and turning and turning. That's what I feel like my mind was doing when I got here. It's like, man, my mind is spinning all over the place, and I'm not getting anywhere. I've been building to get to this point because I feel like this message is so, uh, so important, uh, but now that I'm here, I realize one day is not going to be enough to cover this. So I want you to know, I didn't deceive you. I just didn't know. And so now I'm going to speak about this as a not so short series with a not so short name. It's still called Understanding God's Redemptive Purposes During National Distress. But I realize it's not as short as I was thinking. And in fact, our text for today is on the heels of international distress. If you were with us last week, you know that we looked at a passage in a time frame when we were looking from resurrection to return. We, we noted in Revelation chapter 16 that John said that, the, that Babylon was divided into three. And it's intriguing that for the next few chapters, one religious philosophical Babylon is destroyed, economic Babylon is destroyed, and then political Babylon is destroyed. And that is followed by Christ's return and his total subjugation of the evil one, which we pointed out as we have referenced time and again that way back in the beginning of Scripture, in Genesis 3.15, there was that promise set forth that there would be a conflict between the serpent and the son, the seed of the woman. And in that conflict, there'd be the bruising of of the heel and there'd be the bruising of the head. And the heel would not be a fatal blow, but the bruising of the head would be a complete fatal blow, a complete domination. And we saw that that was the blow to the head was when Christ, at the end of Revelation chapter 20, totally defeats Satan, takes him out of the picture forever where he can no longer deceive the the people of God. And then today we come to Revelation chapter 21 on the heels of this international distress where all the nations are in upheaval before Satan is taken out of the way. And John, as we read, sees the holy city coming down out of heaven. And we read that. I want to focus on one particular verse. We're going to focus on verse 6, but I want to pick it up in verse 5. When John was told, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And as I looked at that, thinking, yeah, we're to put a nice bowl on this thing, the words began to jump off the page at me. Within that one little verse... There are three elements that drop out very simply. There's a declaration, there's a revelation, and there's an invitation. The declaration, it is done. And starting next week, we'll pick that up. So we're just running right by the declaration for today. We want to focus our time primarily on the revelation with just a short touch on the invitation. The revelation is, I am the alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Most of you are probably familiar with the Greek alphabet enough to know that when he calls himself the alpha and the Omega, that alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet, which he then goes on to explain, "I am the beginning and the end. So that all makes perfect sense. What is most important is the truth that he calls our attention to in this declaration that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this is the truth. And we will spend some time on this. The God who is is the god who is is this is a restatement of something we've seen at other places in scripture that god is eternally self existent as the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end Just saying it that way brings us back in our thinking, does it not? To Genesis chapter 1. How the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. He was there before it all started in terms of what we see around us. Not only, though, does it call us to remember that as the Alpha and Omega in the beginning God, the fact that it goes from here to here calls us to remember this reality as revealed throughout the Scriptures. Because it isn't only in Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and in Revelation 21.6. That's not the only place that we see this magnificent truth. It calls us to remember that God has been revealing himself in this way throughout the entire span of redemptive history. You'll recall Exodus 3.14. Little different wording, same concept. Exodus 3.14, we looked at it earlier in this series. We're not going to go back and look at it because you're familiar with it. When Moses was being called to lead the people of Israel out of slavery. And when he asked God at the burning bush, well, who should I say sent me? I go back there after 40 years, I haven't been on the scene, and they're going to say, well, who is this God that sent you and calls us to go out in the desert and worship him? And God gives that incredible answer, I am. Say that I am has sent you. I don't know that two words have ever been filled with more meaning and significance and even possible that they can in terms of that statement, I am. This is the God calling the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we get the concept again in a little different form, but but the exhortation from Moses a, a, a few years later is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord Your God is one. That there is a singular God who sits over the entire universe. That the God who Israel is to worship is not part of a pantheon of gods. Is not part of one of many gods. Is not one in conflict with other gods. He is the only God who is God. Come to Isaiah 43.13 you 're going to see this same truth about the God who is the I am, and then when we get to John chapter eight verse fifty eight again we see this magnificent truth, and it is in the context of this truth presented this way that we also realize that the that the one who is God, the eternal i am there is a there is a his being exists in three persons we're at least beginning to get a hint, not beginning but seeing a hint of that in that it is Jesus Christ himself who when being questioned by the religious leaders, they say, well, you know, when did you come on the scene? Who do you think you are? They're rather irritated with him. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he claims the title that God claimed in Exodus chapter 3. And we see then that we have the father in Exodus chapter 3, we have the son Now, in in John chapter 8, and we're seeing that that this one God exists in multiple persons, and we also are aware, as as we will see it in Revelation, of the Spirit's presence there. But this truth is present throughout the Scriptures from Alpha to Omega and every step in between. And think about this, friends. Friends. Do you know how long it took to write the scriptures that we have? Fifteen centuries to fill out this revelation that we have, that we call our Bible. And over the course of 15 centuries, God was continually revealing himself as the one who is. And the only one who is. The one who is eternally self-existent. So here's a thought to encourage us, friends. If it was true at the beginning as the Alpha, or as in the beginning, God, if it was true there, and it's going to be true at the end as the Omega, and it's been true at every point of revelation along the way, I'm pretty sure it's true right now, that he is this one whom we worship the great I am, the eternal self-existent one. Isn't it fascinating? Think with me for a minute on this. When we come to Revelation 21 and 22, we're coming to, if you will, some, some summary or summation type chapters. The only last two chapters of the Bible. And they are going to put a bow on everything. They're going to tidy up everything that we have been, that we've been studying throughout the entire Bible, if you read it from beginning to end. You get these two chapters at the end of redemptive history. They speak of the one who is the Omega. But it ties us back to the two beginning chapters of redemptive history in Genesis 1 and 2. Think about this now. And so, what does that mean? The first, the first statement we have about God after all of this stuff, about his being. The first thing he says coming into Revelation 21 about his being, he reminds us that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I am, who's been at work throughout all of redemptive history. Think about that, friends. His essential being. is the link that ties one end of his written revelation, in the beginning, God, to the other end of his revelation. I am Alpha and Omega. And they are linked together on this one foundational truth that he is, I am, the eternal self-existed one. 1,500 years of inspired writing built upon that foundation. And there's no mission creep in there whatsoever. I just got to throw this in. You know how we as humans, when, when we come up with a grand idea and we're working with it and we're building on it and, we, and it goes for a while, you know, 10, 15, 20, 50, whatever it is, but somewhere along the line, we're so prone to mission creep. But we start moving in places that were not originally intended. I mean, we see it in our government in this day and age. We have people trying to run for office telling us that we ought to become socialists. That is not who we are. And a lot of people wanting to buy into that. That's mission creep. Go back, read the Constitution, you'll say we're not built upon that. It's an important truth, friends that God is the great I Am, that He reveals that in this summary statement as the first thing He wants us to know about who He is. Because in that, in that revelation, we see, first of all, God's eternality, that He existed before and will exist after this creation, bears its time and its being. His eternality goes beyond what we see and perceive Around us, The second thing that makes it so important is it reveals his transcendence. That he exists outside of this creation. He is above it. He is not part of it. The God who is. Alpha and Omega. Beginning and end. The great I am. Is the necessary transcendent being by which all of creation exists. Everything holds together because of him. We're contingent beings, we call it. I was speaking with my daughter earlier this week, and she's taken a particular course, and she said that part of the course, they were asked to uh, identify, answer the question, of, who are you? Who are you? And she said, it's actually kind of a tricky question to try and answer. And she said, and you get to read other people's answers. And she said, Dad, some of the answers you could just tell they're coming from a modern college experience. But one girl in particular simply answered to the question, Who are you? Answered, I am. And Denea said when she read that, she, she said to herself, uh, There is somebody who can answer that question that way, but it ain't you, sister. You are not. I am. Because we are completely contingent upon the one who is. So this necessary transcendent being by which all of creation exists and hold together is also the one to which all of creation attests. You look around you and everything that you see in one form or another attests to the fact there is a creator God before, after, and above this creation. And I like to think of it in these terms. You can go big, go big, go cosmologically and look at what's out there and it will attest to the very being of God. Just listening to a a a scientist this week describing how our universe is so created in such a way they've they've determined there are like 23 different factors that are in perfect dialed in to perfect tension so that if you were to change any one of them, even a little bit, life could not exist on earth. They would throw everything off. But somehow everything's dialed in so life can exist here within the context of this entire cosmos. And there's all sorts of other things that they're realizing point to a creator God as you go big. Or you can go small. Go to the microscope. Look inside of what's happening in the cell, what they're discovering about the cell. And what they're finding out is, uh, you know, this whole DNA thing that we all have heard about. That it is a means of, uh, of information. And the simple reality is there is nowhere else, there's nowhere else where you don't have an information system that doesn't have a mind and an intelligence behind it. And the very DNA at the chemical level in our bodies points to a creator God with an unbelievable mind who could create that. So go big, go out to space, go small, look at our cells, look deep inside of them, and we find out that all of creation attests to who this God is. Now, friends... It's important that we know this because we are fighting more than a virus. I so appreciated what what Deb had to say and, and what their family is recognizing is that they're in a spiritual battle. And the evil one, as Deb was trying to encourage us, the evil one will try and defeat us. This battle is for our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Ephesians 6 makes it clear, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And, and here's how the evil one at times like this, when this thing wears on and we wear out and money wears out, runs out and we don't know how to put, keep life together. And there's, there's two within my family, two direct households within my family that have no income coming in right now. Nothing from the government, nothing right now. And they're feeling it. It's a stressful thing. And when we get into those places, these are the questions in our humanity that we ask. Does God care? Does God hear when we offer our prayers? And then the big one, which we need to be honest, we ask at times. Is God even there? Is God even there? There And to every one of these questions, the evil one will scream into our minds, No! Look around! It's obvious. He either doesn't care, he doesn't hear, or probably he's not even there. That's the kind of attack he brought to Adam and Eve, so we understand his ways. You know, Job perhaps faced this frontal assault more directly than anyone in recorded history. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that the oldest book in our Bible, the first book written, wrestles with the question of suffering and justice in suffering and what seems like unjust suffering and Job in all of his suffering because he had lost, he had lost his wealth, he had lost his family, he had lost his health and he was, he was reduced uh, to a guy sitting in, in ashes, scraping boils off of his skin in serious agony. So he's got questions. And most of the book is about he and his friends trying to answer the questions. Until the last four chapters. Because Job had said, if I could talk to God directly, I I could get an answer from him and I could tell him why it's not fair that I'm being treated this way. I would give God a piece of my mind. And God answers that request. And he addresses Job for four chapters. God addresses Job simply with questions. Simply with questions that make it very clear to Job that God alone is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I Am. All-powerful from before till after this creation, above and beyond the creation. God alone is the one, and Job is contingent upon Him and doesn't have a clue as to how God is working. And once this has been revealed to Job, he comes with this response, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now I see you. I understand who you are. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Job understand who understood who God is, he was satisfied and then able to endure his trial. Like Job, friends, we need to see who God is. The Alpha, Omega, the beginning and the end. The great I am. Because all reality and all truth have their very foundation of their existence in the God who is. Everything flows from that. Now, creation itself will reveal something of the incredible being of God, won't it? We understand this. Romans 1 tells us that His eternal power and Godhead are known through the creation, that there's something, if this is what we see, there has to be something greater than this that brought it into being. So that's understood by the creation, but you know there are things the creation doesn't tell us, does it? doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't tell us that this God is personal, that this Creator is loving, that He is merciful, that He is righteous, that He is holy. Only Scripture will reveal those things to us. And so that's going to require, friends, exposure to the Word of God. You will be able to see and to know God by His revealed Word. You're going to come to understand who He is. Is And that brings us to the third part of that verse. The third part of the verse is an invitation. The Lord says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. It's a call to the fact that there is, there is life-giving presence that comes from God. And it is freely available. God delights to reveal life to us. In fact, as, as, uh, as Deb had pointed out, you know, the evil one comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And God will give us a life-giving understanding of Himself. He will give it freely from this fountain of the water of life. But there's one necessity to our approach, friends, one necessity. We have to acknowledge that we are in need. He says, I will give the water of life freely to him who thirsts. To him who recognizes that there's a parchment in his his spirit. That that he's dried out because he's tried. We've tried other things. We've looked other for answers. And and they're, they're, they're lacking. They can't satisfy the questions that we have. If we come in self-sufficiency, we may find precious little water coming from the fountain of life. You see, self-sufficiency puts God on trial. We try and make him prove himself. Well, That's probably not going to happen that we're going to require God to prove himself. I, I say that because it, it struck me years ago as interesting. That this this book, the Bible, that we go to to understand who God is, and, and we're saying you need to know Him through His Word. It struck me one day as interesting that you know what? There's no proof for the existence of God in the Bible. Don't go looking there for a proof of the existence of God for an Aristotelian argument that says, "Well, God must ex- God must exist because A plus B equals C, and therefore God." You won't find it. No proof offered, and. Of, for God in the Bible. Uh, he just doesn't seem to feel it's necessary to communicate the reality of himself that way. But he definitely is revealing himself. And I think it's kind of like what I saw uh, briefly. There was a documentary that had been on for a short time in, in our home about Ziegfeld and Roy. Is that who they were? The guys with the magicians in Vegas with the tigers and all of that, right? And I, I got to thinking, apparently their show was Incredible. I'm willing to bet never once of those people sitting in Vegas watching this amazing show of magic and animals and seeing these two do everything they do. I'm willing to bet never once did anybody say, you know, I wonder if Siegfried Sig- and Roy really exist. Well, they knew they existed because they were watching the amazing things that they did. That's what God says to us. Behold the amazing things I have done. He doesn't owe us a proof of his existence. So we need to come to him recognizing we're thirsty. We can't figure it out. We don't have the answers. But the one who is Alpha and Omega does. And if we are willing to come at the outset recognizing, Lord, I need your help. We find that he is amazingly gracious and kind and willing to answer our needs if we will confess them. I want to encourage you that if you have no personal relationship with God and all of this doesn't seem to make sense, that the place where we, where we need to start is to come, acknowledging the need that we need a Savior. This is the center of all that he has done in order to reveal himself and to give us life. Call upon Jesus Christ. He alone can solve these riddles for you. Father, thank you for the joy of being here this evening. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and gracious and kind. Thank you that you are the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is greater beyond and above this creation, before and after this creation. You are outside of this creation, and therefore you're in control of this creation. And as we consider the stresses of what we're dealing with, being isolated for yet another week, another season, Lord, that we can trust you, that you are are in control. I pray that you will minister to those who recognize that they are thirsty, that they're parched from following a world system that has offered them no answers, Lord, and that they will call out to you, acknowledging their need, and that you will fill them with living water, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.